0: You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Let's turn to uh, where we actually were in our reading, Hebrews 10. Uh, like most of the, the sermons here in this series, we'll be in several different places throughout the Bible, but I want to begin our time just looking at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 as we begin our time. I will read these verses, then I'll pray, and by God's powerful hand, I'll preach the word. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we are in desperate need of you this morning. We cry out like the man in Mark 9, we believe, but help our unbelief. I pray that the preaching of your word today would be with power because you are in it. I pray that you would remove all the words that I say that are unhelpful, that are not your words. Oh God, would your word be proclaimed and Jesus Christ, our King, be the one that our hearts are drawn to in love and adoration. May this time be for us as saints the time that we know God. I pray for so many in here that do know you, that you encourage them, that you rebuke them, that you grow them as Christians. And those that do not know you, I pray that they would hear, perhaps for the first time, your Holy Spirit speak to them that they would repent of sin and they would know the God who created them, our righteous and good creator. We thank you for the gift of your word, the Bible. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's work. And we ask this morning that through the preaching of the word you might be glorified and we might learn to enjoy you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In uh, 1992, Stephen Ambrose published a book you might know or heard of called Band of Brothers. Uh, It's a nonfiction. It's a story about men in the Easy Company, a parachute infantry company in the 101st Airborne Division, the United States Army back in World War II. Uh, The subtitle kind of explains the missions that they were on. It says from Normandy to Hitler's Eagle's Nest. So they saw a lot in their time. These guys went through a lot together. They, they worked and fought bravely as so many others have before them and even as we know so many others have after them as well. The book takes you kind of from their initial training uh, all the way to after the war is over when their missions are done and explains this process and what has happened in this brotherhood. The extended crucible of relationships and war all together has taught them from being strangers to being what they've described themselves as brothers. I mean, from the relentless fellowship of suffering that was their basic training uh, with Sergeant Sobel to the sacrificial leadership of Captain Winters, these men bonded together in in ways that very few of us ever have and ever will experience. They had a common mission. They had a common understanding of what they were doing. They had a common group of resources that they were all working from. Uh, They, of course, had a common motivation, and they had to rely on one another. They were each other's partners, sometimes even each other's doctors and each other's friends and confidants in the midst of battle. Together they expended themselves as they were going between different places and as they're on the battlefield themselves, engaging the enemy in firefight, securing strongholds, and then even watching some of their own comrades and friends die besides them. After they'd completed their tour, they returned to a life where the bonds between people, men and other men, seemed flimsy, seemed almost meaningless in times and and cheap to them. I don't know all the reasons behind the publication of this book necessarily, but I can't help but think that Ambrose, once he heard these stories and these interviews from these men, He was compelled to teach and talk about this story and what it meant for them to be bound together in this brotherhood. Their bonds were still evident when he was doing these interviews and realized that they lasted decades after what they had gone through together. They were meaningful relationships, especially as we consider our times of peace, and I think Ambrose realized that this was a story that we needed to hear. Now, most of you have probably at least heard of this book, or maybe you've heard of the television series that uh, HBO made with the same title, Band of Brothers. But maybe you're like me and you didn't know that that title is not original of Ambrose. It's actually original from Henry V, William Shakespeare's play. He's the one that first coined this term, he's the one that wrote about this. There's this section in the play, uh, Henry V. Where a group of outnumbered British soldiers are are being prepared to go into battle against uh, in, at Agincourt, the stakes are very high. Uh, they have few soldiers; they're well outnumbered. But the king calls them together, and he tells them this. He says, "We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For we today, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother." I was reading this article uh, by Julia Keller about this title, and she made this statement about this this idea of Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers, as Shakespeare conceived it, is more than just a rallying cry for a military campaign. It certainly is that, but she says this. It is a makeshift symposium, but she means like a meeting, a meeting on the nature of human ties and self-sacrifice, on the fact that life-threatening peril can bind people more tightly than even traditional kinship. Sheen's saying in the, in the crucible of difficulty and peril and danger that they have to stick with one another, it binds them together in a better way than even their own family ties can do. Have you ever experienced anything like this in your own life? I'm not asking if you've been to war. Some of you have been involved in many battles, but, and we're thankful for that. But I'm, I'm more asking if you've experienced being part of true fellowship. This idea of being a band of brothers, as it were, bound together with something that's far greater than yourself. Today, I want to explore this idea a little bit. I'd like for us to consider what it means to be part of the body of Christ and the absolute necessity of recognizing what that means for how we live with one another. First uh, 1 Corinthians 1, nine makes a statement, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians 1, 3-5 says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer with joy because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. We're in the fourth week here of our, our mini series on spiritual disciplines or these habits of grace that we talk about. And I know that many of us, uh, especially if we've been around Christianity, we know that we're supposed to just do Christian things. It's kind of what we do. But oftentimes, even though we're, we're on board and we want to know God and love Him, we haven't really thought through why we do these habits of grace, why we do any of these Christian disciplines or what these things are actually doing to us. We often think of them as transactions. If I do a bunch of these things, I somehow gain like heavenly rewards piling up on my mansion somehow in there. We Sometimes think about it that way, even though we wouldn't say it in words. And and truth is, maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about this morning. Maybe you're joining us for the first time. This is the first time you've joined us, and we would say welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us today and, and jumping into our little series. Maybe you're not even a Christian, and you're just curious about what in the world is going on with inside of a church. Uh, if that's true, we're really glad that you're here. We'd like to actually get to know you, become friends, and most importantly, if I can say it this way, we'd love for you to see what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a Christian. We promise you that we will probably fail you in many ways, in what it means to actually look like Jesus Christ. It is our desire for him to change us and to mold us so that even through that process, he would receive glory and honor. One of the main reasons we do this as such a big part of our service as we stand here and preach the text is we want to hear what God has to say to us. And so this morning, we desire to see and understand when he calls us to these different spiritual disciplines, these acts of, of, uh, let's say, we, we would call them habits maybe, or these means of grace, what's actually going on? Why are we doing it this way? And kind of when we began the discussion, we we were talking about motivation in that first week. What's our goal in the spiritual disciplines? What's our our goal when we approach these habits of grace? Doing all this stuff in some way needs to tie back to our chief end, right? Our ultimate purpose, which is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So all these things have to come back to that or else we're actually just going to be floating out there in some way. God's glory and our enjoyment of Him forever. But how do we enjoy God and glorify Him in these habits? Well, the first week we looked at Philippians 3, and we saw that Paul taught us that doing these Christian disciplines must be the pursuit of knowing God. That, for me, has been so convicting. As I think about praying, as I think about sitting down to read, as I think about gathering together as as Christians, I I realized that my goal is not just some sort of nebulous glory to God. I hope it happened but actually to know him. That's what Paul told us. He told us that all his religiosity and all of his incredible pedigree was nothing compared to knowing Christ. And so we understand that our call as we do these things is to know him. So we started off by looking at the first thing, that the habit of taking in the Bible. It's okay, we can smile. It's good. It's good. We, we talked about taking in the Bible, God's word, this first incredible habit for us. If you remember the sermon sentence, it kind of was like this: read, memorize, and meditate on the Bible, because through the Bible we know God. And therefore we glorify and please him and we begin to enjoy him by this knowledge. And last week we talked about prayer, right? Another habit of grace. I attempted to ask and answer that question. Why should we pray? I gave you three reasons from the Bible. The Bible tells us: first, God commands it, but second, He shows us that through prayer we know God, and therefore we enjoy Him. Then three, we saw that God is pleased or glorified when we pray. These are gifts of grace, channels in a sense where we meet God, habits that draw us closer to knowing God, and to enjoying Him, and therefore bringing Him glory in all of our responses. But because these two means of grace are so incredible, as they draw us to God and they're so powerful, and because we're Americans, I think today's habit of grace sometimes just so easily gets overlooked. Sometimes we view it as something that is kind of a nice to have, but not absolutely necessary for us to know Christ and walk in His way. We've talked about receiving God's Word. We've talked about responding to and having His ear in prayer. But now we need to talk about living together as God's family, as his people. I want us to consider God's grace to us through fellowship as the church. Now, some of you hear that word fellowship, uh, that maybe you've been around the church for a long time, and you can immediately see like long tables with finger foods on them and like Wafting through the air is weekly brewed uh, Folgers coffee, maybe. I'm not talking about like a potluck after the evening service here. We're talking about like some sort of mixer that's kind of like meeting your people at an event. That's, That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about embracing our identity as integral parts of one another in the body of Christ. And rejoicing, get this rejoicing in the visible gift of brothers and sisters who know and love God and work together for his glory in this life. Let me explain this by simply kind of doing a quick overview of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 and 2, probably all of you know this, we get one of the most glorious explanations of what has happened when we believe the gospel. It's, this, it's, it's, it's tons of different people's life verses is to put it back down there in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And rightly so. It's this glorious passage that tells us of God's great and eternal work of salvation to highlight who he is, to show us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Understanding very clearly that the whole world has willingly sinned against our righteous creator, our benevolent king, who made us and calls us to himself. We were dead, but because of his grace, and by that I mean his kindness, his blessingness, his givingness, nothing that anyone ever deserved, his givingness, because of his grace, he made us alive together with Christ. And that's where we get those beautiful words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is a gift of God. In short, God saves sinners. This is the message that we hear and we glorify God as we rejoice and thank him. But in the book of Ephesians, and actually the rest of the Bible, it doesn't stop there. Notice that it didn't go Ephesians 1 and 2 and that's the end of the book. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 14, Through 16, that this salvation results in the miraculous formation of the one new man. And by that, I don't mean like, I used to be like this, but now I'm a new person. That's a different passage. That's good too, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's actually talking about the church, one new man gathered together in Jesus Christ. In other words, our salvation has never been an individual thing. It has always been a way of God showing that he has welcomed us into the family of God. And this is consistent with the rest of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 11, all the way through 620, which is almost the rest of the book, describes how those whom God has saved are now called together to act as his body in real time and space. It's real. It's not a theory. It's actually happening as people come together to glorify God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, Paul describes this transformation. Listen to this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and, let me go further, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is what I'm talking about when when I say fellowship is a full embracing of our identity as integral parts of one another in the body of Christ. It's a rejoicing in the gift of visible brothers and sisters called to walk together in this life. We're talking about a fellowship of experience. And that means both good and bad. It certainly does happen. I I know I kind of made fun of it, but it certainly does happen when we enjoy times together in the hall talking over coffee. That's certainly true. We could call this, though, but it's the good and the bad. It's all the different parts of this that we see together. In that way, it's a fellowship, or you could call it a band of brothers. I think this rightly gets to the idea that we're seeing here expressed in the New Testament. It's not so much that um, there aren't good times, but rather that there is a bond. There is a sharing. That word koinonia, or fellowship here, is very deep. It's a participation. It's a communion, a relationship that is shared, a close one, that's centered on knowing and loving the God of the gospel. I'm trying to say that the Bible doesn't say that you should become a Christian and then if you're a good Christian, you should be part of a church. The Bible doesn't have a category for that. We end up thinking that sometimes, but that's not biblical. The Bible doesn't really have a category in this way whatsoever. The church is God's design and God's gift of grace to us. And it's yet another way that he reveals himself to his people. That's what we're doing right here, this morning. This is not of human start. If it is, we are wasting our time. What we want to see happen here is a meeting of God's people submitted to him under his word, trying by God's grace, repenting, and glorifying him as we see him call us to do so. And just as a quick side note, it's also how he shows himself to the world outside and also to the cosmos. Uh, by I say cosmos, I mean like everything that's in the universe. This is what I mean, first thing. Uh, John 13, 34 through 35, talking about like the world around us, right? He says this, Jesus has a new commandment I give to you, you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here we go. By this, he's talking about the love that we're supposed to have for one another with the way that we learn from Jesus loving his disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's showing himself to the world, through the love that the church has for one another. Now, let me go to the other, the cosmos. In Ephesians 3.10, you might remember this from the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul says this, "...so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." He's showing his majestic, never-ending, manifold wisdom to all the supernatural, angelic realm. We're talking about demons. We're talking about angels. We're talking about all of those different rulers and powers. Through the church and what he has done in Jesus Christ, he shows how awesome he is and his majestic wisdom. But I digress. Today, I want us to see that this fellowship is something that is not just a nice-to-have, Kind of like, well, I can take Christianity and if I want to be really spiritual, I'll join a church. That's, I mean, that's really committed. In fact, I want us to see that this is exactly God's design. It's not just a perk of being a Christian, hanging out with other people. Now, I want to make a, just a quick admission here. I know that there are some of us who absolutely love being in community with one another. If we could, we would move in together. We would just be around each other all the time. And then there's others of you that are like, oh my word, I could live in my house and get Uber Eats the rest of my life and not be sad about that one bit. I get it. We have differing levels even of like a desire to be with one another. And that's okay. Today is not about me telling you that you all need to become extroverts somehow and really get together all the time and take, take on all these different relationships and then somehow just back up with the Bible. Today I want you to see that much like God has given us the gift of receiving his word in the Bible, much like that he has given us the gift of having his ear in prayer, that we have been given the gift of God's people in fellowship. If we uh, want the sermon in a sentence, this is going to be it. My my daughter reminded me last week that I didn't give you the sermon in a sentence, so I mean somebody's listening. So here is the sermon in a sentence. In order to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we must fellowship as the church. I'll say it again. In order to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we must fellowship as the church. Now, I recognize that's not the only way. I mean, if you've been here the last couple weeks or just heard what I said, there's far more ways. I'm just trying to zoom in on this one right here, this habit of grace, this fellowship as God's church. And just like we learned this the last week with prayer, If we ask the same question about fellowship, like if I said, why should we fellowship as the church? I could actually give you the same three reasons. Number one, he commands us to do so. Number two, it's through this that we know God. And number three, it glorifies him. Done, sermon over. It's that easy, right? I mean, that's certainly true. We could just stop there. And it's a a, a pretty good sermon outline. But I I think that we need to be reminded that what the Bible actually says about fellowship So often times I recognize that we say things and we don't really put definitions to what we're talking about. Why so many of us think sometimes, or at least under the surface, that fellowship is about just simply getting together and talking. We want to see what the Bible says here. So let's do this by looking at Hebrews 10 together. I'm going to read verses 19 through 25, and we'll go from there. Verse 19, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, so that was all the lead in, since all this is true, since, the, since uh, Hebrews 1 through 9 or all through through 10 is all true, since we have Jesus, then he tells us, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice in 23, gives us another one: Let us let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering for he who promises faithful." And then in 24, and again he says, "And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I haven't studied the entire book of Hebrews in depth. But I agree with some of these scholars that will say this section are the three main exhortations of the whole epistle. Like what he's trying to get to and say, this is what you should do. Here are the three things. Make sure you do these. He's been explaining how awesome and better Jesus is over every other form of uh, temporary or religious way to get salvation. Now he's telling them though, not only that, or what they should do about it. It's threefold. Because Jesus has lived, died, risen, and ascended, we should do these things. In verse 22, he tells us to draw near to God. In verse 23, he tells us to hold fast the confession of our hope. And in verse 24, he tells us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but to encourage one another. Now, I want you to notice the structure here that he kind of mirrors how we've been talking about the habits of grace. I'm not saying that's his main thrust here. I'm not saying he's trying to give us those habits of grace in this passage. I'm saying that the things that he calls us to do are exactly aligned with the habits of grace that we've been talking about. I love this. The first thing, in, in verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, without hearts with hearts, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what does that mean for you and me to draw near to God? I bet that most of you could actually answer that very simply and understanding. Is it not at least knowing him through the Bible and prayer? Drawing near to know and fellowship with this God? I mean, most pointedly, it seems right for us to understand that since Jesus now stands before God as the great high priest, that you and I can go boldly to him in prayer. he certainly at least saying in this way and highlighting the grace, the gift, the discipline of prayer. Then in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now, how can we possibly hold fast the confession of our hope without understanding the confession of our hope? especially in the days where we spend the majority of our time getting tossed around with so much different philosophy in the world, which is such angry against this kind of confession. How are we to know this confession unless we are to be reminded of what entails the confession that shows us and writes us over and over again so that we might understand what he has called us to and what we are supposed to do. As we read and meditate on God's word, we understand, then we are convicted, and we're motivated and fortified by this truth so that we can hold fast the confession of our hope, knowing that it is based on the promises of the faithful one, God himself. So we've got praying to God, we've got receiving God's word. Now look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the fellowship of the church that the Bible is talking about. This isn't church potluck only. This is gritty, boots on the ground, fight for faith in God as we see the day drawing near, as we recognize that there is judgment coming, Christ will return. This means that together we know that the day of reckoning is coming. And we know that none of us will be able to do this on our own, but rather need the body of Christ that God has given and designed for each of our growth and wholeness, and that we might know God through it. He calls us to consider the task of pushing one another to love and good works. If you see that word, he says actually to stir up, right? That idea of stirring one another up to good works. It means kind of like to agitate or to provoke. That's the idea here. In fact, when the word is used negatively, it is actually I think it's quite helpful, it means to irritate. What happens when you get irritated, you usually like do something about it, right? He is saying here that we ought to rightly stir one another up to these right things. And this isn't talking about, of course, we're not talking about being an irritation to one another. That's not the goal here. We're not trying to make each other upset. In fact, that's what the rest of verse 25 says, to encourage one another to these things. We're calling one another to respond to God as he has taught us. This isn't the work of like throwing stones at each other and irritating us that way. That's not what he's talking about. It's an encouragement in godliness, love and good works. And this is glorious. This is valuable, right? We understand this is a work of both giving to one another and then receiving as others give to us and as we grow in godliness as well. This is the love that Jesus showed his disciples. Talk about doing one another spiritual good. That's exactly what he said in John 13, 34, and 35. The commandment that he gives to them is like, hey, you know how I love you? That's how you're to love one another. That's the measure here. This is how we go from just doing what we want to do as individuals, to actually loving one another as Christ loved us. In Christian fellowship, there's constant giving and receiving. We're aiming to do one another's spiritual good as we worship Jesus, as we point to him. It is not so much that we have good advice for one another, guys. There's a lot of other groups that can do that kind of stuff. Our doing one another's spiritual good, the goal is for you to just look to your friend and your brother and say, hey, look to Christ, brother, not to me. I can't give you the right advice. I don't have the best things for you. I may have some wisdom, but it can't save your soul. It can't sanctify you. What you need is Jesus. Does that not honor and glorify Jesus Christ? This is what we're talking about when we talk about community or doing one another spiritual good, that God would be praised, that God would be glorified. We know, guys, we know that we're on a journey. I'm not trying to be like silly with that kind of a phrase, but we're on His journey as pilgrims headed towards the celestial city, recognizing it's so easy out here to look about the things around us, to hear the things going on around us and to think, is this all right? We're so tempted to live by what we can see with our eyes, what we can kind of think about, what seems so real around us. It is God's work in us to bring us other Christians who point us regularly to the King, help us understand that what we need is Him and Him alone. He's our hope. God has supplied grace to us through his people and through the work that he calls us to as we fellowship with one another. We know this, we're partners, we're fellowshippers in the gospel, in the great commission, in the endeavor to make Christ known to all the nations and to make disciples, that's the great commission, right? To teach them also to observe what I have commanded you, that they would also be worshipers of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is stirring one another up to good works. That's what we're talking about here. Encouraging one another as we walk in Christ. But he gets real practical and maybe uh, a little uncomfortable. Verse 25, he says that not only are we to stir up one another to love and good works, but that we should not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, what is he talking about? I mean, some of us get together for, for coffee or for Uh, lunch dates maybe, and we pray together. Maybe we have people over our homes and we have good Christian conversation. These are not the activities that he is talking about when he says to meet together. The word he uses here is about assembly. It is about Christian worship of the church. This is what he's talking about. He's not talking just about meeting individually. In short he's talking about a meaningful church attendance and engagement with one another, gathering to worship God as the body of Christ. I mean, and this, this isn't a modern issue. This isn't something that just happens right now because we're all so busy. No, 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 no. He says it right here. It seems as though the writer of Hebrews is saying that neglecting the gathering, meetings, the gathering meetings of the church was a habit for some of the people that called themselves Christians at this time. What he's doing, he's saying, no, No, that's a terrible habit. Don't start it, don't continue it. He's saying, no, 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 no. This is not the right habit for any of us as Christians to be continuing. When we are away from the body of Christ, as they meet together, it becomes detrimental, both to the body, but also to ourselves when we are away. It's not like, I'm sorry, it's like when we really consider it not receiving God's word, not reading, not maybe, for instance, meditating or memorizing. It's like neglecting to speak to God in prayer. That's what he's saying. We're cutting ourselves off from the means of grace that God has given and always has meant to build us up in Christ and glorify him. Now, we could spend a lot of good time talking about how this can work out in so many ways, and we should in one sense. Small groups and community groups and and personal discipling, enjoying fellowship and friendship with one another, these are good things and I am not downplaying these. I hope you hear me say that. I hope we do those more. In fact, here's a plug. Tonight we actually have a prayer meeting together. You should come. You should be in a community group. There, I can, all these things are good things that we should be doing. You should be spending time hosting others, loving them hospitably. But when it comes to the fellowship as the church, there is one time that outshines all the rest. And that is the complete gathering for regular worship of the body of Christ on the Lord's Day. What we're doing here together today. Corporate worship is God's gift to his people. Think about all what happens on a Sunday morning and how it helps us to know and to glorify God. We sing praises to God as the congregation, lifting his name high. We pray together to our God who hears, joining our hearts, calling out to him in faith that he would answer us in our need. We read the Bible. We take in the words. We even respond sometimes with affirmations of this faith. We hear the preaching of the word of Christ, the highest point of Christian worship, and we receive the Lord's Supper together. We participate in the body and blood of the Lord. We're nourished and encouraged to believe. We talk in the hallways, we, we have touch points with other people we haven't seen in a while and it brings up conversations about what's actually going on and potentially even leads to further discipleship for one another and actually asking us and each, each of us, how are we growing in the Lord and knowing Him? We give our resources, we, we, we give through offering so that it might proclaim Christ through our giving and support the work of the church. We serve one another in children's ministries and AV and coffee and cleaning, all different things as we serve one another in music in all these different ways. We do all these things not as individuals who happen to be in the same room together. Together we join together as a corporate body of Christ and members of God's household. Now, there are more parts of Christian fellowship than just the Sunday morning gathering, but there certainly are not less. If I could spend my pastoral dollars on something in this series, this would be it. Um, It's so good for us to be doing many other Christian acts of community. I'm glad for that. But there's one thing above all the others that is going to be helpful, and it's the gathered meeting of the church for corporate worship on the Lord's Day together. It's the incredible experiential knowing of God that says that this isn't just some sort of real experience For me. No, 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 no. It takes it out of like this personal religion and it shows us that it is grounded in history, reality, others who have been called by God's grace to proclaim who He is and follow Him as disciples. It's corporate, it's an actual experience of knowing God with real, visible family members. This is this kind of encouragement. And this kind of stirring one another up to good works is unlike any other manifestation of Christian community. It's unlike it. If you're looking to partake in this means of grace, fellowshipping at the church, this is where I would encourage you to start. But not only that, I'd encourage you to stay. I'd encourage you to go deep and to recognize this gift of grace that God has given to us, His church. Now, I've spent a lot of time preaching to the choir, right? I mean, you're all sitting here, right? I mean, you're like, Chris, we're the ones. We were here, man. It's okay. You know, like, oh, I understand, Chris, you had to preach this so that we could all go home and save that podcast and then give it to all our friends that didn't come today. They're the ones that need this. I get this. Well, I understand that thought. But I have two responses. First, praise the Lord. May God bless you and me as we grow together in worshiping God and as Christ answers every one of our insufficiencies. I praise God for that as we worship together. My second response would be this. Some of us think that this message isn't for us. Some of us think that this message, again, are for those who didn't come to church today. But the answer to that is no. I think I have a feeling that you might might be just like me that you have come this morning with mixed motivations for why you came to church. Sometimes you have a real clear purpose. Other times, not so much. And sometimes there's several different reasons why you would come. Some of you don't know what church is really about. This is a whole new experience for you. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. We hope that you can stick around and we can actually become friends and that you would see, again, like I said at the beginning, not how awesome we are, but how awesome our Savior is and what He calls us to do. We're glad for you to be here. Maybe some of that's not your thing. Maybe uh, you actually do know Christ, but you come to church and it's more aimless. You're not necessarily aiming at something. You're just making sure you get here on time and stay and get as many times as you can. Maybe you struggle in a sense with checking the box for church attendance, like you check the box for Bible reading or check the box for prayer. Maybe that's in some ways how you think about coming to church. You want to do it, but sometimes you come in, you sit down, and maybe sometimes you even disengage from what's going on. Friend, remember our goal that we said back from Philippians 3. It is not that we would go through these different religious experiences so we can check those off or hopefully get some sort of merit when we get to heaven. It is to know God. As we come together, our goal is that we might know Christ and that we might make him known to one another. In that way, we serve one another and are served by this beautiful means of grace of fellowship. That means the good stuff, that means the bad stuff. That means the encouragement and the serving, and that means the rebuke and confrontation and coming alongside someone and knowing and say, brother, stop this, you need Christ. Turn from sin and let's go forward together in him. This is the work of means and fellowship. This is an active pursuit of knowing God. Oh, I just want to stop there too. I think that probably most of my growing up going to church was a passive activity. I had to go. Like my parents went, and I had to go. I think that bled over a lot into when I went to college, and I still kind of had to go. So I just went, and I just was a passive bystander. As time went on, I recognized what I needed to be doing was actively listening and taking in and looking and worshiping and believing and repenting. This is what I would call us to. This action there, we have active listeners and then active goers and encouragement to one another. So I would encourage you to listen carefully to all the parts of the liturgy, to proclaim who God is, to hold on to those truths, to think about them, to, to sing them. And when you don't mean it, as it happens so often for many of us, repent and ask God for help. Ask that he would give you a heart that would know him, and that would love him. And that you would be like the man in Mark 9. I believe, but help my unbelief. I want to know you. Please empower me by your grace to do so. Oftentimes, just to let you know, I'm doing that without saying the words right now, like I realize, even in the act of preaching, that only God can sustain. Only he can work in our hearts. It's my prayer that we would continually look to him for that. There are some of you here today as well, though, could be regularly getting corporate, maybe getting to corporate worship just isn't your highest priority. And you're glad that you made it today on this sermon. I recognize that, and I want to say that there's grace. And I want you to hear this. So glad to be together. If this is not normal for you to regularly come or make this a priority, can I just encourage you, to start making a priority. Recognizing the means of grace that it is. Showing, in, in a sense, that we recognize that what God has called us to in this command is good work and that we glorify him and we know him so our joy is heightened as we partake in this means of grace of fellowship. I'd simply ask you to be encouraged to obey and to call on God for his help and to embrace the body of Christ meeting regularly. This is grace to us and glory to God. They said earlier, uh, from the beginning of one sentence, in, in order to glorify God and enjoy him forever, We must fellowship as the church. May it not be empty, a passive experience going in and going out. May it not be aimless, but rather something that we are changed, being confronted with the word of Christ, looking to Him, bringing honor and glory both in our words and in our heart posture that is changed as we repent of our sin and look to Him alone for our righteousness. It's in the church. He says in the sanctuary in Psalm 73, in the gathering of fellowship of the saints, that we know God. Where we start to look at Him and realize the things around us that may not look so good, it's okay. We know that God is in control. We can trust Him, His character is sure. We can trust Him and we can glorify Him. It's in the church that we praise His name, that we rejoice in Him and bring glory to Him as a band of the righteous ones. May we embrace this beautiful means of grace not as mere duty, but as delight, as we know and glorify God forever. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your grace in the the word. I thank you for this congregation and so many other congregations, Lord, who obey and love you and desire, Lord, to be changed. I pray that you would encourage your people this morning, with the gospel of grace and forgiveness and joy and the glory of God in all these things. I pray that you would turn our hearts to obedience, to love, and that you might receive praise from our lips and our hearts and our lives. We thank you for what you have done in the fellowship. We ask that we would embrace you, knowing you, glorifying you, as we fellowship as a church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.